Welcome, uh, everybody, to episode 64 of the Ski Podcast. It's going to be quite an interesting one today. We've had some big news this morning, but topics we're going to be covering are going to be whether or not uh, ski resorts are going to open. That one's running and running, that story. We're going to talk about, unfortunately, some uh, British ski companies going out of business. We are going to have some more positive news with uh, uh, snow reports from out in the Alps. And uh, we're going to be talking in Ski Book Group uh, with the author of one of the books, which is uh, which is quite good. Also chatting with Graham Bell about Dancing on Ice and the guys from Chalet Shop. Uh, but before we do that, um, I'd just like to thank Switzerland Tourism for supporting the Ski Podcast. And you, listener, if you're not a regular listener of the show, please do subscribe. And if you are a regular listener to the show, please do uh, review us and uh, share us if you enjoy the podcast. Now, I'd like to introduce my guest today. Uh, firstly, we have Jane Peel, who is Chief Reporter for PlanetSki.eu. Hi, Jane. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. And we also have Alf Alderson, uh, who's an author and freelance journalist. Hi, Alf. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm fine, thanks. Uh, first question I have to ask you both. I'll start with you, Jane. Uh, when did you ski last? <laughs> well... Yeah, this is a good one. It was almost exactly one year ago. It was, I remember it very well because it was December the 7th. It was the opening day of the season at Les Manuire in the Three Valleys in France. I'd been out for about an hour and a half when I had a ridiculous fall and ruptured my ACL. So hence, that was the very last time that I skied. Um, I didn't expect to ski for the rest of the season. I suppose you could say that if you had to have a season out, then last season was the best one because it ended early anyway, thanks to uh, to COVID. But yeah, I, I, I'm afraid I remember that situation very well. And I have the uh, privilege of being the very first customer of a peace patroller called uh, Freddie. Very first customer of the season. But there Gosh. you go. Well, after, after Alex Irwin, um, a couple of episodes ago, I asked him when he last skied, and unfortunately his was an accident as well. I'm hoping, Alf, you're going to give me a more positive story than that. When were you last out on snow? It's Well, it's it's more positive, but not 100% positive. Last time I skied was um, the, towards the end of March last year, uh, well, this year, in a fantastic little resort called Castle Mountain in Alberta, um, which features in my book. Um, and the, the snow conditions were amazing. There were no, there's no one on the slopes, blue sky. But two days before, I put my back out. So yeah. I actually, I did get, I got to ski. But when the conditions were at the best, I was just watching other people, well, two other people going up on a lift to ski, empty slopes. Um, so that was it for me. When I got back, everything had shut down. So that was the end of my season as well. Okay, but I, you know, I have to admit, I'm having trouble finding sympathy for you there, given that you sound <laughs> like you know you're out in Canada and you had perfect <clears throat> conditions. Um, let's move on then to when we might next ski. Um, you know, we're starting off every single episode of the podcast now discussing whether and when ski resorts are going to uh, open. We've had you know quite a lot of news since our last uh, podcast. Uh, French resorts have been demonstrating. Uh, against the enforced closures, um, or the closure of the lift uh, anyway. Um, I believe there's going to be a decision uh, for France tomorrow on the 11th of December. Today we're recording this on the 10th of December. I think it's unlikely that there will be any change to the French situation. And so their lifts probably won't open until the 20th of January. Jane, what do you think about that, the situation in France? Well, I'm very, very pessimistic about it, I'm afraid. I mean, I know there have been a lot of demonstrations and I hear that there's also legal action in, in the courts to try to uh, force the government to change its mind and get the lifts open. It's not going to happen, frankly. Um, the situation is still pretty bad in France. Um, they're trying to put a good front on it by saying that the resorts will be open, but the lifts closed. Um, it, you know... I know a lot of people will say, great, you can do cross country, you can go snowshoeing, you can go ski touring. But from my point of view, even if I could get there with the COVID restrictions in France and the UK, even if I was able to get insurance cover that I was happy with, uh, even if the foreign office <clears throat> didn't have a, a current advisory warning against traveling to France for anything but essential reasons, as well as every other country I can think of as well, then I'm not sure I'd go because maybe maybe I'd go to do 
cross country on trail, something like that. But ski touring, are they going to have any peace patrol out? I doubt it if the lifts are closed. And certainly they won't do any avalanche mitigation. And there's been a massive amount of, uh, of snow, as we know. So you could argue that I'm a bit of a pessimist anyway, but I won't be going in the immediate future. And I think it's very <coughs> unlikely um, that France will change its plans and open up to the outside world or even open its lifts until well into January. I don't know whether, yeah. I mean, Alf knows very much uh, more about France than, than I, I think, do. I think those are all very uh, valid points. I mean, you mentioned about the demonstrations and uh, pretty much every resort has had some kind of demonstration and they're certainly trying to show uh, their community that, you know, it is obviously very important for them. But uh, this legal case that you mentioned, I believe was taken, it's a um, Domaine Skiable Francais, the French ski resort uh, collective, have been suing the government against this decision to close the lifts. And I believe that that was uh, rejected yesterday. So I don't really think that's going to change. Although I have seen a couple of amusing um, items from different resorts who've done their protests in different ways. Did you see the picture of the town hall in Châtel where they put Swiss flags up on the, uh, on yeah. the town hall themselves? I mean, they're just down the road from Morgeat in Switzerland. You can actually walk to Switzerland from there. And there was a good one from uh, Chamonix where I think they'd suggested moving the border. It might have been Valocine residents suggested moving the border to the Col de Monte so they could be technically <laughs> in Switzerland and, you know, they'd be allowed to... Uh, uh, to ski but Alf what do you think about that do you think there's any chance French resorts might open earlier than the 20th of January I can't see it really to be honest Ian um, I was in contact with Les Arc which is where I spend every winter um, two days ago and the PR people there said that um, well they didn't say anything to be honest but they, they kind of intimated that it would be the 20th of January before anything much happens so uh, I'm going out hopefully next week and I'll just go ski touring. I know people who are ski touring, but as Jane said, you know, it's going to be important to be very careful because um, there's been a lot of snow and there's probably no avalanche control going on right now. I know that the lift, um, the the resort, well, in Les Arc, and I think it's the same everywhere else, they've got the snow cannon working, so they're obviously planning, um, planning ahead and expecting to open at some point, but it's certainly not going to be this side of, uh, of the new year, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it is interesting in relation to ski touring, which is uh, allowed. I've seen a number of people suggesting that uh, people who don't have enough experience will be going on the mountain. But uh, I think later on in the podcast today, a friend of the show, Alex Irwin, who I mentioned earlier, he was ski touring in Courcheval and he shared a couple of photos on uh, on Twitter, I think it was, of the the piece down from the Celia Cable Car Station had been pieced. So quite straightforward mm. to go up and down. But this is... <laughs> early on in December when those resorts formally open it might be that they restrict where people are allowed to go ski touring to try and make it safer it's hard to see you know which direction that will go well it's, it's interesting actually I guess because if you think about it they will have to piece the slopes to some degree even if people can't ski there because they'll need to have them ready for when things do open so I guess people could take advantage of that um, but the issue is going to be insurance and that kind of thing, because if, you, if anything did happen, are you going to be covered? The resort certainly isn't going to be able to send anyone out to rescue you. So ski patrol won't be working, presumably. So it's just it's like everything's so up in the air at the moment. You just I think you almost have to just make your own plans and go with that. And if you listen to everybody else, you might do this, you might do that. But it's, it's, uh, it's so hard to know what the best thing is to do. You've got to make your own decision. But ultimately, when I question... Um, all of the restrictions that are in place and all the potential safety risks, I, I think, you know, I would come down and have to say I'm, I'm not prepared personally to put myself through that. And, and you wonder how many people will. Um, and, uh, and as Ian said, the risk there is, is will people who are perhaps not experienced enough choose to undertake these activities when, when they shouldn't? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, well, well, we'll we'll see on that. What is interesting is that the uh, French have come up with this idea that uh, French people are not going to be allowed to cross the border to go and ski in other countries, which seems to me to be unenforceable. You know, I've swapped uh, um, some correspondence with a friend of mine who lives over 
in France who is a, a frontier, someone who crosses a border every day to go and work in Switzerland. Now, she's saying, well, what's to stop her sticking her skis in her car and just going over to to a job and then going for a ski afterwards? It, it does seem like it's unenforceable. But the fact is that at currently today on the 10th of December, ski resorts in Switzerland or a number of ski resorts in Switzerland are open. Do you think they'll stay open, Jane? It's a really difficult one, isn't it? I understand that the uh, the federal government is uh, likely to be announcing tougher restrictions uh, tomorrow, I think, or at least looking at the possibility. How that will impact ski resorts, I just don't know. Um, clearly, Switzerland is resisting pressure from other EU countries to close. Um, and there are some restrictions in place and more restrictions in fact which came in at midnight last night uh, where um, the resorts well we know the resorts have to get permission to open from the cantonal authorities uh, but they also can no longer have more than two-thirds full the lifts can be no, no more than two-thirds full they're also having to the lift operators are having to show that they can enforce social distancing. We did have a couple of issues with photographs doing the rounds on social media in Verbier and more recently in Zermatt where there were crowds at lift stations. The next day it was all resolved of course but those sort of things don't look good and there is pressure on the ski resorts uh, to close or at least um, enforce restrictions uh, more, more closely. The issue I think will be whether the federal government itself the new in, uh, restrictions that it imposes, the effect that that will have on the ski resorts. Will they in effect have to close or will they be able to continue? At the moment, it's the, it's the least restrictive country. Yeah, and I think, I think that beyond. announcement uh, is tomorrow. So, you know, if they suddenly change things, you might, uh, listener, you might find me dropping in uh, an extra edited uh, segment here. <laughs> and that's exactly what has happened. Uh, firstly, we found out that uh, there was a threat that British people will not be able to travel to the EU after Brexit happens on the uh, 1st of January uh, because we'll be prevented under Covid measures. It's not clear yet whether or not that is just a bluster or whether or not even individual countries will enforce that. But that is a possibility which might stuff up uh, the idea of skiing. On a more positive note, also, while we were recording, it was revealed that it looks like French, Italian and Austrian resorts will all open on the 7th of January, assuming uh, that the various COVID uh, measures are met uh, targets in terms of the number of infections. So that is much more positive news. But those pictures of Verbier, <clears throat> excuse me, they definitely didn't look uh, good. It did remind me to a certain extent, I live in Brighton. Sometimes you see these photos of the uh, of the beach in Brighton and it looks like it's really busy because of the angle it's taken from, but actually all your social distancing is in place. But with that Verbier queue, you know, that, <laughs> that looked very, very bad. And I don't think whatever angle you would take it from uh, would work. You know, people are outside and they're wearing masks, but uh, it's not good. I, I just find it strange that people in Switzerland who do ski, you know, you, you would think that, bearing in mind the circumstances and whatever their views on, on social distancing and whatever, they would just make a bit of effort when they are able to ski to do the right thing. Um, because, you know, unlike everybody else, at least they can get up onto the mountains. So crowding together like that and... I just don't really understand it when, you know, it wouldn't take a lot of effort to just stay two minutes yeah. apart. I think and, humans and... need a, a bit of direction, you know, need the, you <laughs> actually literally need to have that kind of two metre spacing marked on the floor in front of you, mm. which is I think what they did from one day to the next in Verbier. And then people, people did it and it made a difference. Um, what about Austria? My understanding of Austria at the moment is that they have now said, that lifts in Austria can open for Christmas. I think they're going to open on Christmas Eve. But that skiing will be for locals only. There'll be no hotels or accommodation uh, opening at all. Whereas in Italy, there's going to be no ski resorts open. Is that how you see that, Jane? 
Yep. Um, <laughs> although I'm subject to, uh, to, to, to being uh, contradicted on this because things are changing uh, constantly. But yeah, Austria will open ski resorts on Christmas Eve. They had, have said it's locals only. At the moment, they say no bars, cafes or restaurants will be open. So I guess it's locals who have got their own accommodation and can go to the supermarket and buy their own food. Um, there is the possibility that they will... Um, ease those restrictions on bars, cafes and restaurants if the COVID situation improves. But otherwise, it's um, it, it's uh, Christmas for locals only. Alf, I believe that Eastern Europe might be one of the few places that you could go skiing for Christmas. Would you would you consider that at all? Well, uh, yeah, um, I, I would, except for the fact that I'm going to Les Arc. But um <laughs> Yeah, I did see that Jasna in um, Slovakia is open. But the problem, I mean, I guess the problem for everybody is if you go out, then you've got to quarantine when you come back. So yeah. is it really worth a one-week ski holiday to then take another week away from work? And, and I just think for most people who aren't fortunate enough to live in a ski resort, it's probably just more hassle than it's worth. Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of surveys that have been done that have shown that, uh, you know, there are people who say they're prepared to quarantine. And from the 15th of December, the test and release program starts, which means that you can come back to the UK on day five. You can have a test. And if your test is negative, uh, you can be released that day. So it would cut down quarantine to just five days. As Jane points out, you've still if you're going to go away, you need to have uh, insurance uh, as well. <clears throat> or you would be highly recommended that you have uh, insurance uh, as well. Uh, so, you know, these are just the challenges of getting away. On top of that, it's being able to find a holiday. And sadly, uh, since we uh, last were on in episode 63, we talked about VIP ski uh, going into administration. And we've had two more companies go into administration since then, which are Ski Me. And uh, yesterday, or possibly the day before, Alpine Elements. Now, Alpine Elements have gone into what I understand is a pre-pack administration, which I had never heard of till the other day, and I had a look at it. And, uh, Jane, I think you actually spoke to the owner of uh, Alpine Elements, didn't you? Could, could you tell us any more about that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, I didn't know anything about really company administration. It's 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 very complicated um, until I was doing some research fairly recently. But uh, yes, James Hardiman, the founder and managing director of Alpine Elements, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, independent uh, UK uh, tour operators offering chalet holidays. Uh, he has come, gone into this pre-packed deal with the administrators. What in effect that means is that he has spent a long time trying to find major investors to keep his company going and failed to do that. So he had no choice but to bring in the administrators. Now, that doesn't mean to say that the company has to cease trading. If he can come up with uh, enough money to buy the brand and its assets uh, in this pre-packed deal, and it'll probably be for a, a knockdown price, of course, um, then the administrator <clears throat> will allow him to do that as long as they think it is likely to be a going concern. Now, I spoke to James Hardiman today, and he said that there was absolutely no choice but to do this, and he faced the option of liquidating, closing the company and making all his staff uh, redundant, they all lose their jobs, or going for this pre-packed deal and trying to carry on the company. And that's what he's decided to do, having got a financial backer at the very last minute. And he thinks he's going to be able to do that. He says if his customers uh, want his uh, his holidays, then he wants to, to carry on and uh, and provide them. But I mean, what this means is that the two and a half million pounds that he owns, his customers who lost their holidays in the spring as a result of COVID, he doesn't now, or Alpine Elements is no longer liable for those debts. They will be paid in effect by the taxpayer, but, but ABTA, the uh, travel organization of which he was a member, but is no longer, and Atoll, the, the Civil Aviation Authority, um, Atoll is the tra travel organisers, uh, the flight organisers licence. They will pick up the debts. So James Hardiman is able to, to restart the business without those debts. 
and, and carry on. But he's not actually selling holidays at the moment. He says right. he's going to have to um, okay. see if that's possible. Okay, so I mean that's very interesting. You have actually spoken to him now. I don't know uh, James Hardman, and I'm only uh, you know I'm familiar with Alpine Elements because I know they've they've been around for quite a long time. But um, I think it has been pointed out that although maybe they're not selling holidays at the moment on their website, they still have the ABTA logo on there, which they uh, they stopped their membership a couple of months ago, and they have the uh, the Atoll logo on there as well, which they're not part of, and it. It seems it just seems something odd to me about a company going into administration and then it's a fait accompli that they come out of administration with the previous owner having, you know, he's currently still owning the brand name. Yeah, well, actually, I did ask you can you can read more details on, on this. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes to your article. Um, yeah. But 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 I did question James Hardiman about the fact that he is still displaying the ABTA and Atoll logo logos on the website. And he said that he'd been trying for weeks to get the uh, the website people to take it off. And he's been assured that it will come off within the next week. But of course, you've got to be careful because if he does start selling holidays again, uh, if he sells holidays with flights, it is a legal obligation to have atoll. So he will have to reapply for mm. an atoll if he wants to sell holidays with flights. He doesn't have to rejoin ABTA, which is a membership organization. But he says if he does send, sell holidays, he will attempt to be bonded to yeah. protect Press, protect customers. Okay, well, I'm sure this one might run. Maybe we'll see if we can get James onto the show to try and explain it. But let's move on to some more positive news. We do, there is skiing going on and there have been people out there. I mentioned uh, Alex uh, earlier. Um, we're just going to run a couple of reports <clears throat> now from the Alps, from Alex and also from Charlie Reese, who's previously reported uh, uh, for us from Andermatt and Engelberg. Hi Ian, Alex from Korshvar with a pre-Christmas ghost town snow report. Even though the lifts are still closed, Korshvar is getting ready for the Women's World Cup giant slalom this weekend. A late storm dumped a nice layer of snow which combined with ample snow cannons guarantee the course is in excellent condition. For the rest of us not wearing lycra race suits, certain pieces are open for ski touring, and as this is my first time on touring skis since my accident, everything went well, apart from my general fitness that is. It really makes you appreciate the one ski back down the slope. You really have to earn your turns, as they say. However, as this is the only option until the lifts open on the 16th of January, it looks like I'm going to be a lot fitter at the start of 2021. Well, that about wraps it up. I hope everyone is staying safe. And if you're missing skiing, subscribe to my YouTube channel, 150 Days of Winter. Ciao. Hi all, this is Charlie with a quick update from Engelberg in Switzerland. As I'm sure you're aware, skiing is still continuing here in Switzerland. And a number of other resorts are set to open uh, this weekend, the 12th of December. I was at Engelberg this uh, Thursday practicing some ski touring on the Brunny side of the mountain, which has only recently opened. Uh, but additionally, they've opened up the Laubersgrat and the Jokstock as well, so there's much more skiing available in Engelberg. Andermatt is also scheduled to open some other areas of their ski resort beside the Gemstock. Additionally, some smaller ski resorts on the central Switzerland snow pass, which is the ski pass that I have. Uh, are also looking to open this weekend. Uh, these include Sturz and Sorenberg and Klervenalp, all of which are quite close to Lucerne. In terms of coronavirus, the Swiss government have updated their policy slightly, uh, although they haven't updated it very much. Essentially, all they've done is just clarify that ski resorts are allowed to open over Christmas, and they've also set limits in terms of the uh, transportation capacity of these ski resorts to be no more than two-thirds uh, of their capacity. However, they haven't explicitly limited the numbers on the mountains as such. So just going back to Engelberg this Thursday, uh, it was fairly busy because it was the best uh, best weather day we've had in quite a while. It's been fairly foggy and snowy, as I'm sure you've uh, seen on the, on the webcams and through the news. However, as I mentioned, I uh, decided to go and ski on the Bruni side of the mountain, which was very, very quiet. Uh, no queuing whatsoever and a very limited number of people using any of the lifts uh, and skiing down at all. In fact, in the main cable car on the way up, they'd actually installed screens, uh, dividing it into six sections, which I thought was quite a good idea. 
the skiing isn't really extensive on that side of the mountain, but it's perfect for what I wanted to do, which was just practicing my ski touring. So I toured up to the top a couple of times and then uh, just enjoyed the, the lovely sunny conditions uh, for the rest of the day. Bruni is actually on a south-facing slope, so you get lovely sunshine compared to the, the tip list, which is north-facing and quite often in the shade. So uh, it was very much like spring conditions, particularly in the afternoon with a, with a bit of slush on the top, uh, but very enjoyable. So whilst mentioning snow, it's worth just noting that uh, Switzerland's currently at a level three avalanche risk for, for the majority of the country. Very sadly, at the beginning of this week, a, a skier was killed by an avalanche. Uh, they're part of a group of five skiers skiing not very far off the lift on the Titlis, uh, just below the, the middle section of the Titlis Express gondola. Two of the people caught in the avalanche were able to free themselves on their own and uh, were able to use their transceivers to locate the third 23-year-old um, who tragically died. It's not clear as to whether they were with a guide, but it's immensely sobering uh, just to realise the power of the mountains, even if you have all the right equipment. Uh, they're still a dangerous place and you must take account of the avalanche danger and the snow conditions. But anyway, that's all for Engelberg for now. And yeah, hopefully the cars fall in the right direction and you're able to get some skiing in in the not too distant future. I also wanted to thank uh, Craig Glenny, who contacted us via Facebook. He's been out in Lake Louise uh, where he says all 10 lifts are open. 119 of 160 runs uh, they have covid rules for mandatory uh, face coverings uh, lift lines and lifts uh, only with your cohort group and um, but charlie uh, was out in engelberg now that gives us a good link through to ultimate skiing adventures uh, subtitle of which is 100 epic experiences in the snow and the author is alf alderson who happens to be sitting with us right now <laughs> all right <laughs> um Alf, tell us, tell us a little about, about this book. We've been lucky enough to speak to a couple of authors before. We had Mark Freire, who talked to us about Aiming High uh, and the life of Ern Lowe, and John Tregell, who told us about uh, Sham. That was back in episode 20. What inspired you to put this uh, book together, Alf? Well, actually, I was asked to do it. So <laughs> I think right. it was um, my publisher. Um, I actually written a couple of surfing books before. Um, one of them along the same lines as, um, <clears throat> you know, 100 Epic Surf Experiences. And they said, do you fancy doing a ski one? And I was thinking, well, yeah, why not? <laughs> so uh, that, that that was it, really. I was asked to do it rather than thinking of the idea myself. And then um, basically about 18 months ago, just sat down one day and thought, right, where are the 100 best places to ski? Um, which is a long process. I mean, because there aren't really 100 best places to ski. As I say in the book, the best place to ski is the place you're skiing at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I just sort of sat down with friends and picked out places all around the world that we thought would be appropriate. Must have been great fun kind of putting it together, but also quite difficult deciding what you were going to exclude uh, out, of the list, uh, out of the list. Because obviously on the right day, <clears throat> any ski resort could be a you know brilliant place to be. Yeah, and of course, as, a, as an individual, is you've, you've got your personal favourites, which have to go in, um, but that could be at the expense of everybody else's personal favourites. I mean, I think I mentioned in the in in the book that you know I haven't got whistling in there for for a start, which I know a lot of people would would just wonder why why on earth isn't whistler amongst the hundred best. But I mean, it's it's always going to be subjective, isn't it? This kind of thing, and um, and one of the things I wanted to do as well was I mentioned Castle Mountain earlier on. Um, I wanted to get a, quite a few small, not well-known ski hills in there because um, often they can provide as good, if not better, skiing than the big, well-known resorts. So there was a certain bias towards, I wouldn't say a bias, but there's definitely um, a number of small hills in there that perhaps people won't have heard of. But I can only recommend them to check them out if they get a chance. Yeah, well, I've got, I've got the book uh, with me here. <laughs> I'm just uh, looking through. Quite interesting. So there's no Whistler, but you found room for Nevis Range in Scotland. Well, we had to have one from the UK in there, didn't we? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah. Uh, and as I say, as it says in there, on, on, on its day, it can be as good as anywhere. So well, hopefully I might get to try it this winter. Jane, do you have a favourite ski resort at all? Uh, yeah, that's a difficult one. First of all, I haven't seen Alf's book yet, but I'm very much uh, looking forward to it. Maybe it'll be a Christmas present. Um, I would say that Probably five years ago, I would have said Teen. 
um, for a number of reasons. It was very much my home from home. I spent five weeks there a few years ago, met lots of people, um, love skiing with them. It's vast, it's high, there's loads of off-piste. Um, but I think since then, I've traveled to an awful lot of places for planet ski. And I think like Alf says, um, the best place to ski is the place you happen to be skiing at the moment. I would say there are some small resorts um, that I like very much. I also love virtually anywhere in the Dolomites for its sheer beauty. But one place that really stood out for me uh, was somewhere you may not have heard of. It's called Tavascan, and it's in the Catalan Pyrenees. And I went there only to cross-country ski for one single day, but it is a, a ski tourer's paradise. Not a place to go if you want peace skiing. There's one lift and a couple of runs. But the atmosphere there is spectacular. It's got a refuge that does fabulous rustic food. And the village of the same name is, has got incredible history relating to the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War. So I would just love to go that, back there. That sounds great. I'm going to put that into the show notes. I can see Alf making, taking notes right now, thinking, <laughs> OK, OK, I need to get out there. Alf, there are 100 in your list. Is there one that stands out to you as, as your favourite? I know you said, you know, where you are at the time. I know you live out in the Lazark area, but is there a, is there a particular favourite for you? There's, there are a few favourites. I mean, so I could be here for ages going through them all. But um, one of the things I particularly like, and I've been fortunate enough to do quite a bit, um, is road trips. And I've managed to visit a few small ski hills in North America, which, um, again, as Jane just said, character makes a big difference to a place. I mean, I love the big resorts in Europe, but often they can be a bit samey. Whereas the small ski hills, the great thing is on the small ski hills, you can meet the locals. People just get in chatting to you on the lifts. They'll often invite you round the mountain for a drink afterwards. And I've made lots of friends. I mean, one that I suppose I will mention one then Red Mountain in uh, British Columbia, where I first skied about 20 years ago, um, got to know some of the locals. I've been back many times since. The skiing's, a lot of it is actually beyond me. There's some really serious terrain there but the thing i like about it is it's just so welcoming you know I, I, I've, I've got friends there now who come stay with me in wales in the summer um and yeah that that's that that would be i'd have to say red mountain if i'm going to pick one particular spot okay well i'm going to stick that one a link to that in the show notes and that's very interesting i'd like i'd love to kind of try it in uh, in canada at some point um that could be a great Christmas present. In the show notes as well, we've got a discount for podcast uh, listeners, a 30% discount with a code. So you'll just need to look in the uh, show notes for that to see uh, where to buy it. Uh, I'm also going to put into the show notes another uh, link from uh, Columbia have done a deal with Star Wars. If any of you have been watching The Mandalorian, you can pick yourself up a little onesie uh, for, your, uh, for your own younglings. Uh, and also in the Christmas mood, and uh, moving on, last week I interviewed uh, Graham Bell, who's going to be taking part in Dancing on Ice. Now, uh, we interviewed Graham last in episode 52 about his uh, viral House and Calm uh, video. But in this interview, I talked to him about uh, uh, Rebecca Vardy and her routine, how his training is going. And we talk a little bit about the fact that he has done Ski Sunday for 20 years or is going not to be doing a Ski Sunday for the first time in 20 years and about his fitness. I'm joined today by uh, Graham Bell. Hi, Graham. How are you? Hi, how are you doing? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Graham's been on the show uh, several times before, and most recently when we talked about his brilliant viral video that he did in, in lockdown <laughs> yeah, 1.0. But this time around, uh, Graham, you are taking part in Dancing on Ice uh, 2021, a completely different challenge. I know you've taken on some big things before. What prompted you to to make the decision to get onto frozen ice? Well, it was basically uh, an offer that came along and uh, the timing of it with, you know, with the season, the ski season looking so much up in the air and uh, dancing on ice, putting a solid offer on the table. And it was like, you know, I've got to, I've got to take it, you know, because right. I've been all the way through lockdown and, and not worked and, you know, been for six months without actually working at all. Uh, supposed to go to Tokyo for the Summer Olympics. That didn't happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when you've got a solid offer, 
in these kind of times, you can't really say no. But then again, I know that you're a, a very competitive person. You know, that's big. we've seen that, you know, during your career. And also, I remember when Superstars was on a few years ago and things like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you're probably in it to win it. Would that be right? I'm, I wouldn't say I'm in it to win it. I'm in it to try and perform as well as I possibly can. And, you know, because, you know, ultimately, you know, this isn't really in my, my comfort zone. Um, this is not something that I would say I'm naturally good at. And, you know, it's, it's not something that, you know, that's, you know, all of the challenges that I've set myself in the past, you know, since I retired from ski racing, um, like long distance endurance challenges, like the marathon de Sable, you know, you work hard, you train hard, you push your body. Um, whereas this is a performance and it's trying to create a performance and doing so as a partnership, uh, it's it's very different and it's very much outside my comfort zone. So I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm I'm you know gunning to win. Um I'm just trying to to do as well as I possibly can and uh, and and you know and ultimately be proud of the performances that I you know that we can we can put together. Okay. Well I, I imagine I mean how long ago did you actually start your training? Because I know it was announced quite a long time ago that you're going to be uh, taking part in it. Yeah so we've been training for the last couple of months and uh it's been the training has been slightly different this year because of uh because of covid uh normally uh you would do like a couple of weeks training with you know with specific coaches uh and then you would get introduced to your pro and you'd start working with the with your pro and then the coaches as well but um we were straight in you know uh there's your pro start training and uh you know it's been different it's been uh you know, incredibly, incredibly steep learning curve. Right, I'm, I'm sure it has. Remind me, I did uh, look at who your pro that you're working with is. So my pro is Yebin Mok, and uh, she is uh, an American of South Korean descent and was on the US uh, national team for a few years and then uh, moved into uh, show skating. And, uh, you know, this is her first time on Dancing on Ice. Although her husband, uh, Tom, right. who's British uh, and is a doctor up in Manchester, actually trained the orthopedic surgeon. Uh, so it could be very useful to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I know you said that, um, you know, you're probably, you know, you're more um, interested for the uh, for the challenge. But, uh, you know, do you see any of the others as being, um, you know, com competitors that uh, you need to kind of get past? Who would you say your main challenges are? Well, as, as the names were announced, Colin Jackson obviously leaps out as, uh, right. as an Olympic athlete and uh, uh, second place in Strictly. So he can obviously dance. He actually yeah. did a Christmas version of Dancing on Ice many years ago as well. And I know Colin and I've skied with him and I know how uh, competitive he is um, and also how much of a perfectionist he is. So he really right. wants to make things absolutely perfect. And yeah, he's definitely going to be one to watch. Uh, potential to be very, very good. I think uh, in another interview, we might have discussed that you said he was one of the most natural learners that, that yes. you'd uh, coach was. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, teaching him to ski, uh, it was just so easy to teach him to ski because you would just, you know, tell him a minor correction, you know, of a, of a shoulder position or, you know, hip angulation. And he would just do it, you know, just straight away. So I know how good he is at uh, his spatial awareness and, you know, working. And so, yeah, he's going to be tough. He's going to be a tough right. one to be. I think he's going to be, yeah, um, you know, top five um, you know, in, that, in that top five. Okay. Can I ask, Graham, uh, have you ever heard of a movie, someone who's asked a question via Facebook of, uh, about The Headbanger? Do you know what that movie is? The Headbanger, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen a lot about The Headbanger. I actually, um, when I got into the show, I went and I, I was doing, I was in a charity shop and uh, I found a DVD from the series one, two and three of Dancing on Ice. And uh, David Seaman, I think, was doing a headbanger with some wee <laughs> Scottish pro, and he smashed her head onto the ice. Oh my god! <laughs> pretty nasty. So it's yeah, uh, basically you grip their ankles. Female round is that? Yeah. So happened? so basically, yeah. you, you you grab your pro by the ankles and spin around, <laughs> and her head just goes like a kind of elliptical orbit, like yeah. brushing the ice, and then back up again, then brushes the ice, and back up again, and so hence the headbanger. 
I think the whole series, if you if you got to the final, could be uh, ten weeks or something like that for you. Yeah, you yeah. Right? I mean, it could be a whole a whole yeah. season. So if it, if it starts in Will January, I be able to go skiing? early January, <laughs> what's going to? I presume within your contract, you're probably not allowed to go skiing, or uh, you I wouldn't want to go, go to Hemel. I can go to Hemel to the <laughs> snow centre because uh, Dancing on Ice is actually filmed just outside Hemel, right? A place called Bovingdon, which is about ten minutes away. So yeah. yeah, I could if I yeah if I wanted to just put some planks on again, I could go to Hemel. But uh, you know, I'm hoping that I'm going to be in it till the end, you know, and, and get to the final three. Um, yeah. But either way, they want you back for the last show. So right, uh, of course they do. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. I mean, if if I go out early, then I'm going out to the Alps and I go skiing, and then I'll come back. And <laughs> I'll yeah. come back for the final and, show. And but... Obviously, you're not doing Ski Sunday this year. You know, with everything that's going on with the World Cup, it's unclear exactly what's happening there. But presumably, this is the first year. I'm thinking the first winter that you haven't worked on Ski Sunday for a long time. Yeah, since 2000. Since 2000, wow, yes. that yeah, is yeah. a long time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's a long time. But I mean, I mean, I hope you know, hoping Ski Sunday will will happen in some shape or form. Yeah, well, events like uh, and dancing on ice, and I guess strictly a kind of you know great things to watch uh, in a time of uh, let's say difficulty to give us you know sort of warm feeling and uh, to to entertain. Yeah. Uh, I see another comment on Facebook. Uh, someone said that your Instagram is very good. He says either you're very good at <laughs> editing or you're actually quite good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to start sticking. I've got some more um, Instagram reels that are lined up and ready to go. I've been playing around with some costumes. And uh, some some various music, right? Uh, so once yeah, once we get onto our Christmas break, I'll start putting them out on uh, on Insta as well. Generally, you're very fit. I know you do lots of uh, you know running and uh, and everything else, and a lot of cycling. Is this made you? Is it a different sort of fitness ice skating? Yeah, well, you know what, I've been doing a lot of upper body work um, because I've got a slightly dodgy right shoulder. Um, yes. and there's a lot of overhead lifting. So I've been doing a lot of, um, like hanging, just basically just hanging for a minute. So yeah. just to try and stretch and doing what you call straight arm pull-ups. I don't know if you've yeah. ever done straight arm pull-ups, but you're just trying to basically get your shoulder blades to pull down against your rib cage. So you hang and then you go in as if you're going to do a pull-up, but you don't do a pull-up. Okay. And... I, I, I you... seem to remember we went on a press trip together to Val Terenz one year and you were kind of doing pull-ups on the door of the apartment or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds a bit familiar so to that. A bit that's, yeah, that. so that's all about the posture as well. So that's to improve the posture because my posture is bad from skiing and cycling. You know, right. shoulders uh, hunched forward. So the first couple of weeks I was skating with a TheraBand held behind like this. Okay. So, you know, you know, pulling, like pulling my arms and, yeah. and trying to get my chest up and trying to stand tall, uh, elongate the neck, um, shoulders, you know, shoulders down, shoulder yeah. blades pulled back down towards your rib cage. That's all about good posture. So the things that I was doing to improve that were the hanging um, but also headstands and so handstands rather than headstands. Okay. So just trying to work on my handstands. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because that's obviously going to help with overhead lifts. So yeah. doing well, a you're lot very of... on message there because I saw uh, uh, David Beckham has been uh, incorporating this into his fitness routine now. He's very into uh, doing handstands. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm guessing that uh, Yebin probably isn't particularly heavy as far as 50, 50 kilos. Yeah, 50 kilos okay. and yeah and an incredible core strength as well so yeah. when when i lift her you know you know you can feel that there's no wobbles you know <laughs> she's just like she 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 can move around uh you know and you can hold her and basically you lift her up and she'll keep her body absolutely you know level and flat which which makes it actually quite easy to do those lifts and she can jump as well. She's got good explosive strength. So a lot of the time when you're doing a big lift like that, uh, it's all about the timing. So if you get your legs, both of your legs, all, you know, all four legs firing together. So if you time a, a push with her jump and she'll basically just sail up there and then all you've got to do is straighten your arms out and, you know, holding 50 kilos above your head is actually not that difficult. <laughs> once it's once it's there 
it sounds it sounds easy enough uh, apart from the fact that you've got ice skates on and you're uh, yeah, sliding so around that's, the yeah, place, that's the other that's, thing and that's having the yeah. uh, the skill right well yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's very interesting talking to you about it graham and uh, i look forward to seeing it and it's going to start in early january i believe is that yeah, right 17th of 17th of jan um, 17th yeah. of january yeah okay yeah. So 17th of january and if all goes well it'll run for uh for 10 weeks well, it'll and, run for uh, 10 weeks you'll be in it for and yeah. uh, we'll see you in the final towards the end and then you can get a just a sneak in at end of a season ski trip uh alf dare i ask you have you ever watched dancing on ice i haven't so <laughs> everything you're saying then meant nothing to me at all yeah jane what about yourself dancing on ice um, it's not something that i uh set my alarm to watch i have seen it once or twice but i'm afraid i'm very much a strictly come dancing girl Okay, well, we wish Graham all the best with that. Hopefully it'll work out starting in January time. Um, He is uh, going to be spending some time with celebrities and that links on really nicely to Richard Branson, who we know is a very keen skier. He, in fact, uh, has a property out in Verbier. And I spoke to the founders of Chalet Shop, who actually first kitted out his, uh, his lodge in Verbier and about the business that they do now. We work with our um, ski chalet owners to kit out their chalets from top to bottom. So we provide bespoke made packages of furniture, all the fixtures, fittings, everything like that, um, and work alongside with them to basically create their dream chalet um, or apartment, uh, depending on the size of their property. So, um, and as I said, we're based based in the UK. Uh, we'll work to, once we've decided everything and uh, created uh, the, the look that they're going for we will then order everything to our warehouse in in the uk and collate everything together and ship it out all in one go so completely take the hassle out of receiving tons of deliveries and, and the rest of it as you can imagine to try and okay now that sounds that sounds like a, a a great idea i'd love to have a a chalet in the out personally we don't we actually have a one-bedroom uh, apartment in chamonix is it is it service that extends to kind of all levels if someone you know had an apartment they were looking to equip as well yeah uh we work with all sorts of uh sizes and budgets and um you know it can vary from uh off-plan apartments a lot of people are buying off-plan at the moment uh, but it can vary from that to, you know, a large sort of farmhouse chalet that's been handed down generation to generation. So you obviously have the experience. I'm in, I'm interested and I kind of know a little bit about the background, but I'm interested in how you how you got that experience, because, um, Hannah, I believe you. Well, would, would it be right to say that one of your first clients or your first uh, experience of, of kitting out a chalet was Richard Branson? Yeah, that, that is correct. Yeah, I was lucky enough to live out in Verbier for, for eight years. It seems like a little while ago now. But yeah, we um, we set up uh, the lodge in Verbier for Richard Branson and Virgin and uh, had a great time doing it. But it, it was a, it was a big renovation project. Um, so the big team of us uh, looking after it, but myself and my husband at the time. Uh, managed the, that, that project. Um, and yeah, it, it was fantastic. A great experience. Um, but on the back of that was really how Chalet Shop was born because during that process we came across various um, limitations, frustrations of getting hold of all of the kit that you need to, to kit out. I mean, obviously that's a very large scale 10 bedroom hotel uh, lodge. So, and we work with clients who've got one, two, three, four bedroom apartments um, up to the big chalets as well. So, um, but still, there's still a lot, a lot that goes into kitting these out. So. And and that property that you're talking about, the lodge uh, in Verbier, that's a, a boutique hotel. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say um, it was. It, it was we set it up um, for groups of clients, friends to come out and enjoy as as a whole. So it slept twenty four, I think. Um, okay. So we had nine ensuite bedrooms and then a kitchen. Right. And is that is that somewhere that Richard Branson bases himself when he goes skiing? Yeah, absolutely. So they were actually our first first guests out. So that was a bit of a baptism by fire. So uh, I remember finally it was a bit like challenge Annika trying to get everything finished off and uh, with with uh, Richard and his family and um, he didn't quite get the memo on the twenty four beds. So I think there was thirty six guests that, that first couple <laughs> of weeks. So um, and we hadn't quite got our staffing right. So we were definitely could have done with a couple more uh, couple more team members then. 
but we had a, we had a great time and yeah he he very much uh came came out, enjoys spending time out in the mountains and um as with all, all of the other properties i think he has around, around that, the world. that sounds like a classic challenge to the start of the season because for so many people who you know who've done seasons it ends up that your first week of guests are typically christmas guests and you've got to sort of yeah. sort out a turkey etc the only yeah. the only pressure being this time around that your first set of guests are richard branson who happens yeah. to own the property uh, as yeah, well he hadn't seen it so he hadn't seen it finished it was all that kind of hype of like is he gonna you know him and his wife jane are they going to be pleased with the finished result and I just remember a massive sigh of relief when they walked in and I was like, you know, big smile. <laughs> they were super happy. So, and we had, as I Excellent. Said, a and, and so if he was your first client, Sally, now, you know, a client would come to you and they would have their personal requirements, you know, what they're looking for and the way they want to kit a, a property uh, out, presumably. Yeah. Have you had any particularly unusual requests for, for items inside a chalet? Uh, we've had, yeah. Well, we've had a few sort of, uh, well, every project is different, really. Um, there's never two that are exactly the same. Um, but people do have very different re requests because, you know, everybody's got different families and different needs. Um, we had one uh, family that the whole family was vegan. So nothing in the chalet could have anything to do with uh, any animal products at all. So, for example, any sheepskin decor was out, which is, you know, quite popular in in most chalets um any antler like or leather seats or anything like that was out so we just had to okay find, which was um a different one um i could see how that one would be a particular challenge because i've been in many chalets in the outs where yeah. there are literally dead animals on the walls yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's not necessarily the decor that yeah. i go for but there's yeah. plenty of them uh, around so to yeah. uh, but to do it without any leather at all is that what you're telling well, it me wasn't just that. it was no leather but it was nothing that even looked like it they didn't want anything you know no faux fur or anything which is usually the run of the mill you know a lot of people want that sort of yeah. soft coziness but um they just didn't want any of that but they still wanted the cozy look so we had to just be a bit more creative with that but um you know this that's that kind of thing's what makes it interesting really you did say to me, I have to kind of set this up but you, you said I should ask you about the surprise chalet what does that mean <laughs> Uh, this is yeah this is a story that we're all probably slightly slightly jealous of aren't we Sally but, but we've got a client that we're working with at the moment and um, slipped into conversation the other day that his wife didn't know about the chalet that he's purchased and that he is kitting out and it's a surprise gift for her so um <laughs> I think we'd all we'd all like that for Christmas wouldn't we <laughs> it was supposed to be a Christmas present but because of um the pandemic obviously it's got it's got uh, delayed like a lot of our other projects but um yeah so she's yeah. still coming uh in the summertime which will be amazing i'm, I'm not sure santa will uh, will get that uh, yeah. down the chimney so i'm yeah. guessing you know over the over the years then so you've been in terms of you know since you first started working on the verbier chalet for richard branson i think that was maybe eight years ago or something like that and you talk about the difficulties you know you're running lorries uh, out from the uk over to the alps uh, any particular yeah. challenges you've come across uh, you know in your experiences there well, yeah, we we certainly started off on um, a tricky a tricky foot, I should say. We Sally and I, I can remember both very excited about uh, our first big order that was going out, and it was actually for an old friend chef of of mine who was uh, setting up a new restaurant. So it was a big crockery order. It was all loaded on the lorry, ready to go, and we had a, an email saying without prejudice. And Sally and I were like, oh, what's happened? And the lorry had turned over on the on the M25. Um, all of the crockery smashed. Oh but my god! It was, it was a good, a good lesson, a good in insurance, um, and uh, how that process works. Um, but we did manage. We got the crockery out to him before the restaurant opening, so it all worked out okay in the end. But um, you know that seems like forever ago now. Um, and we have, we have now have thankfully lorries going regularly out there who are so used to kitting out our, our projects. So the guys who, who drive the lorries out are the guys who also install the um the right property so they right. they you know they're used to working with us they okay they, and you mentioned you did mention to me in the green room earlier that uh, one of your clients who uh, is uh, having a man cave equipped in his uh, his property over in the apps and he asked you for a drum kit uh, are you a technician's going to set up that drum kit for him and tune it for him as well <laughs> yeah yeah they, uh, they tested it out as well yep <laughs> <laughs> working order for him 
Yeah. Um, yeah, we've done drum kits, we've done baby grand pianos, down to, you know, um, Heinz baked beans we've had to send out for people yeah. as well, so that they've literally got everything when they arrive. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all- okay, so definite, definite uh, uh, challenges <laughs> there. So, but I guess now it's probably perhaps easier for you because you're not actually out in resort, you know, manning and looking after the properties. But I think you said to me, maybe Hannah, when you were originally uh, running the lodge for Richard Branson, he would have a habit of kind of, well, clearly bringing extra guests. You mentioned he he brought too many to start off with, but bringing back um, sort of guests at the last minute that you probably weren't expecting. I'm sure, I I don't know whether you, you know, Richard is a very sociable character and um, would often meet people out on the slopes, um, friends in resort and it'd be extras two three four five six for dinner at last minute um but we had some quite exciting drop-in guests as well which was always quite fun for all of us and our team so i think raymond blanc dropped in one evening so um the chefs in the kitchen <laughs> definitely had a bit of, two of whom who'd, um, who had um trained and worked in the memoir so, so for them it was a massive deal um but actually such a lovely evening and um he was a very nice guy and um, I, I, we had yeah, some some really fun stories, but I can remember quite uh, in the quite early days, um, Peter Gabriel popped in, um, and they wanted to have uh, an evening down in the kind of party room, and he, we didn't have a piano down there, so we quickly whizzed down the mountain, and the best we could find was this Casio keyboard, and I'll just <laughs> yeah, him just really um, going for it, playing sledgehammer on this Casio keyboard that we bought, but it was just an amazing experience, so. Yeah, we we had all sorts of totally inspiring guests who came came out came out there. So it was, it was cool. Good I, I I like I like that. I've seen I've seen Peter Gabriel out in Mirabel before, back yeah. in the day when I was working out there. And when I worked in Zermatt, uh, I went to go and visit uh, some of my guests in a chalet one time. And Jules Holland was just playing the oh, really? uh, piano uh, impromptu in the in the uh, lounge there. But those are all great stories. So that's. That's been really interesting having a chat with uh, both of you. So essentially, if people have a property in the Alps, if they're uh, getting a new property and they're interested in, in equipping it and having it uh, you know, completely shipped from the UK with bespoke packages and accessories, etc., then they should be contacting you at Chalet Shop, which is chalet-shop.com. So uh, if you happen to be buying a shell in the Alps, that could be for you. But moving on to a different type of uh, kit, let's talk a little bit about uh, ski hire. I'd like to thank Intersport Ski Hire for their support for the podcast. Uh, you'll already know that uh, if you do book your ski hire now and you have to cancel it later on, you're guaranteed a, a refund. And podcast listeners can uh, save an extra 10% on everything using the discount code WINTER2020. But uh, they had a survey out recently uh, where they were asked, they asked people, did you know that you could swap your skis during the week? Now, personally, I find that really useful. You know, I'm often um, moving between touring skis and alpine skis. Uh, Alf, you live in the mountains. I imagine you probably own your own kit. But do you ever hire? And did you know within sport, you know, is it useful to be able to change your uh, your kit during the week? Actually, I did a trip um, about two years ago to the neighbouring resort of La Plana, and we did exactly that. We changed our skis nearly every day through into sport which is great because you could do a bit of piece skiing, do a bit of off-piece, some ski touring. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good deal. Cool. And what about yourself, Jane? Do you, if you're in a resort, um, do you, do you, have you done that before? Have you swapped your skis around during the course of the week? Yeah, sometimes I've had two sets of skis on the same day. Um, I can't remember the last time I actually took my own skis. They're, they're way out of date. Um, InSport's been absolutely fantastic. Um, it means that you can... Uh, get your skis out according to the conditions or what you want to do on that day. So I always consider myself as needing assistance from my skis. If there's a whole load of powder, I do not want to have stiff piece skis on on me. I want nice, fat, lovely off-piece skis. So I'll do that. If I want to blast around on the piece, I may go and want my favourite piece skis, the Atomic Redsters, although I'm not sure I'll be skiing with those now with a dodgy uh, dodgy knee. But, um, yeah, I even actually hired some um, some rather playful uh, park skis, and I'm not I'm not a park rat at all, but I love them. So, yeah, I think, I think it's a fantastic thing to do. And, um, frankly, I wouldn't take my own skis anywhere unless I was going for a long trip and maybe driving. 
Yeah, well, that's that's uh, uh, me. I mean, I don't actually have my own skis anymore just because uh, normally I find it easier to uh, to not shift them around and to, uh, <laughs> to hire. And then it, you can be flexible during the course of it as well. Um, great. OK, well, um, listener, if you could give us a review on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, uh, that would be great because it helps people uh, to find us. Um, in our next episode coming back, uh, coming up uh, towards the end of December, uh, we'll see if anyone's managed to get out to the Alps. And if there is any skiing anywhere, we'll have a few snow reports uh, in. I'm still working on that uh, Ed Lee interview, so maybe that will happen. But for the moment, I'd like to thank my guests for today, which is uh, Alf Alderson and Jane Peel. Uh, also uh, to thank Switzerland Tourism and Intersport and, of course, uh, yourself, uh, Lister. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the ski podcast at buymeacoffee.com. Researching, recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.